You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Australia investigates an attempted hack of its federal parliament. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security warns that spies are working through third parties to get to their targets. Spyware is bundled in a legitimate privacy app. Credit unions get spearfished. Mr. Bezos says, no thanks, Mr. Pecker. Sandy Roddy is chief scientist for cyber warfare operations at Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. She joins us to talk key management. Apple will pay a FaceTime bug bounty. Microsoft says don't use IE as a browser. And what they found in that seal, scat. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, February 8th, 2019. The Australian federal parliament was subjected to a cyber attack that seems to have been largely unsuccessful. It's thought to be a foreign operation, but there's no evidence it was directed at influencing upcoming elections. The Australian Broadcasting Corporation says the Australian Signals Directorate is investigating. The inquiry is in its early stages, and no attribution is expected in the near term. A number of observers, however, are speculating that the incident was a Chinese operation. China's intelligence services have targeted the federal parliament before. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has added its voice to a report on Chinese cyber espionage by Recorded Future and Rapid7 from earlier this week. DHS warns that there's a trend of APT-10 and other state-directed threat actors to approach their targets through third parties. Security firm Bitdefender warns that tryout spyware has been bundled with altered copies of the legitimate Android privacy app Siphon. The company's researchers had first observed and sounded an alert about tryout last August. In that round of infection, the spyware was bundled with an adult content app. This time, the packaging is much more innocent in appearance. Once installed in an Android device, tryout records calls, logs incoming texts, records videos, takes pictures, and collects GPS coordinates. And of course, it reports back to whoever's running it, currently via a server located in France. Bitdefender thinks the combination of high capability and low infection rate suggests that the spyware's masters are using it against carefully selected targets. The clean version of Siphon is the one sold through Google Play. As usual, it's better to stick to large, official, well-known app stores. They're imperfect, of course, and everything's imperfect, but they're far better than buying from some opportunistic market. And, of course, to install a pirated version of anything is just asking for trouble, in more ways than one can easily count. Krebs on Security reports that there's been a recent phishing campaign targeting officers at credit unions who are responsible for anti-money laundering measures. The email told the credit union that the National Credit Union Administration, the NCUA, had noticed transactions that looked like money laundering, 
and then encourage the recipient to open an attached PDF for more details. The PDF, of course, carried the malicious payload. The text of the email was fortunately marred by the uncertain command of English usage that so often betrays phishing attempts for what they are, and it's not clear that any of the recipients, whom one would expect to be a wary bunch, actually opened the attachment. But the credit unions have a queasy feeling that someone, somewhere, might have. One of the credit unions, all of them are speaking to Krebs on security on background, not for attribution, says that its IT staff traced one of the emails back to a Ukrainian source, so the campaign may be the work of an Eastern European criminal gang. The specificity of the phishing is interesting. It was first observed on January 30th, when National Credit Union Administration anti-money laundering points of contact at various individual credit unions received emails that purported to be from the NCUA. The persons being spearfished were the Bank Secrecy Act officers the Patriot Act requires credit unions to carry. NCUA is the independent federal agency responsible for ensuring deposits at credit unions. The phishing campaign has been sufficiently well-informed to lead credit unions to suspect that the attackers have somehow obtained non-public information from the NCUA. NCUA is not really talking about the incident, but the Treasury Department had said it's aware of the attempts and has asked that all credit unions disregard emails of this kind. The Duty of Care campaign in the UK has apparently persuaded Instagram, which has announced that it will take content that shows or advocates self-harming down from its service. The policy change was prompted by the very sad case of a young teenage girl who took her own life. Her family fairly convincingly blames content on Instagram for prompting her to commit suicide. Amazon founder and Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos says in a blog post on Medium, that AMI, the National Enquirer's corporate parent, is trying to blackmail him into calling the post off stories AMI would prefer it didn't run, mostly pertaining to either Saudi Arabia or to the current U.S. administration. AMI seems to have told Mr. Bezos they have and will publish intimate selfies. He's responded by preemptively telling everyone what's in those selfies, and he's declined the offer to keep things quiet in exchange for certain considerations. No thank you, Mr. Pecker, as his post is titled, effectively telling AMI to publish and be damned, and he asks rhetorically, if in my position I can't stand up to this kind of extortion, how many people can? Mr. Pecker is David Pecker, head of AMI. How the Inquirer got the -the below-the-belt selfies is unclear, TechCrunch says, and it also notes that the Inquirer is an old hand at getting embarrassing pictures. AMI, according to The Independent, The Washington Post, and other sources, is conducting its own internal investigation to see if it might have done something wrong in the way it got a hold of the pictures, which it doesn't think it did, but which it says it's going to get to the bottom of. Good news for the teenager who found and reported the privacy bug in FaceTime, with a lot of persistent help from his mom. Apple will pay him a bug bounty. Maybe you thought Internet Explorer was a browser. We sure tended to think of IE that way. But think again. Microsoft says it's a compatibility solution that should be used selectively and not as your primary browser. As Redmond puts it, quote, We're not supporting new web standards for it, and while many sites work fine, developers by and large just aren't testing for Internet Explorer these days. They're testing on modern browsers. End quote. So, for your browsing needs, look elsewhere. 
Finally, here's a little cautionary tale about the physical destruction and disposal of electronic media. Don't just fling the stuff overboard and expect your data to vanish for good. Wildlife veterinarians in New Zealand were running a check of seal scat, which is a standard way of monitoring the health of various animals. As they were doing so, they found, in the scat, a USB drive that the animal had apparently swallowed and subsequently pooped out. We stress apparently because not only was the data on the drives easily recovered, it held videos of seals disporting themselves off the bow of a kayak, but the owner has come forward. A seal enthusiast herself, she says she has interest in all matters otterine or phocine, down to and including their scat. She thinks she accidentally dropped the dongle in some seal droppings she was checking out on a beach. Anywho, if a drive can survive whatever happened there, it will surely survive being just tossed out. Dispose of electronics securely and properly, and keep them out of the mouths of children and animals. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, it's great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch base with you today on credential stuffing and how folks can protect themselves against it. Can we just start off at the beginning here? What are we talking about with when we say credential stuffing? 
Credential stuffing is where uh, an attack group, typically cyber criminals, uh, want to steal identity information or even in some cases credit cards or or create fraudulent transactions on e-commerce sites. And the way that they do this is they go uh, out on the public uh, internet and in some cases even the dark web and they download huge files of email address and password combinations. And these files exist out there through intentional dumps from other attack groups. And they're freely available out there. In fact, there are even some websites that advertise, enter in your email address and we can tell you uh, how many times uh, you've been compromised on these uh, on these e-commerce sites because these dumps become uh, the public domain essentially when they hit the internet a lot of times. So uh, these adversaries grab those large files and then they write scripts to try each of these username and password combinations against your, uh, your e-commerce site. There are ways to uh, prevent this, and in some cases, um, maybe if not prevent it, then slow it down to a manageable level so that you can take action. So the first and the best course of action is to implement multi-factor for your customers. Hmm. Now, I know that there may be some revenue people out there that are going to be saying, well, Justin, that's going to affect the customer experience. And we're going to see a certain percentage of lost revenue because our customers can't figure out multi-factor. And I'm going to say there's there's two ways to go about this. The first way is, yes, you can take that that little bit of customer experience hit or you can wait until you your site has become a victim of this and it becomes newsworthy and you take the brand damage or you take mm. the hit of that. And in, in some cases, take uh, the EU, for example, there could be a GDPR violation by not uh, taking appropriate steps. So multi-factor is, is the best course of action. It doesn't matter if it's an SMS, uh, Google Authenticator, uh, or CAPTCHA or image uh, selection. But there's got to be some way to verify the next step of identity after you put your uh, email address and password. One really effective way to seeing how many of your users have been affected by this is to essentially crack your own passwords. And what I mean by that, the way to go about this is to talk to your threat intelligence provider. I know we do this uh, at iDefense at Accenture where our customers will ask for the latest uh, dump files out there, the, the millions of usernames and password combinations, and they'll put that into their system and essentially run the same encryption protocol on the dump file, and then they take each encrypted password and compare it against the valid encrypted passwords on their own site. And that way, if there's a match, you know that that user has reused a password someone somewhere else on the internet that there's it, where it's been publicly available, and then you can you can do a few things. You can lock that user account. You can send them a helpful email, or you can reset their password and send them an email uh, that they need to uh, essentially reset or unlock that account. Now, what about things like rate limiting? Just not letting people you know pound that login with uh, with attempt after attempt. You know, it's funny you say that. I was just, I, I literally just worked a case on that last month. Mm. And there are products out there in the market that could do that. I think that uh, that this client was working with, uh, with Akamai. They have something called the Bot Manager, which uh, looks for 
anomalous patterns in traffic uh, in order to identify that. But one way to get around that, and it takes a little more time, but uh, and it takes a bigger swath of, of hosts that the adversary has access to, but they can do this in a, in a low and slow manner. Uh, in fact, there's also ways to do this through uh, using human beings. Instead of a, a script, you could even farm this out to 10, 20, 100 people, uh, perhaps in low-wage countries in order to run the attack yourself. So so rate limiting is definitely recommended. It is effective, um, but it is not quite as effective as multi-factor. And I wouldn't put all your eggs in that basket. Yeah. All right. Well, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. My guest today is Sandy Roddy. She's chief scientist for cyber warfare operations at Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. She joins us to share her expertise on the proper management of encryption keys and the importance of understanding the key life cycle. We all seem to be very, very comfortable with the fact that, oh, click this button, invoke this thing, and your data will be encrypted. But the missing piece in my mind is the life cycle approach to say, when I need to do encryption, what are the entire set of concepts and and ideas that I need to make sure that I understand so that I don't unintentionally brick my data? I, I th- one of the analogies that I think is, I have one of those locks on my front door where I can set different key codes for the different people who are coming into and out of my house when I'm not here. And that allows me the ability to manage my key to my front door. And it starts with the fact that I knew I needed to be able to allow different things to happen. I knew the purpose of ingress and egress of my house. And I knew that there were periods within which certain keys would be active and certain keys would then become deactivated. So that's a a beginning piece of trying to understand key management. Well, let's dig in some here. Can you describe to us, what are you talking about when uh, you're putting out this notion of the life cycle of these keys? So the first thing you need to understand is what kind of information do I need to encrypt? What kind of keys do I want to apply to it? Who's going to have access to those keys and who's actually going to manage the keys? We, we are very, very comfortable with NIST has done a phenomenal job with the FIPS 140 uh, criteria by which when you go buy an appliance that's going to generate your key for you, we know that it's good. But what we don't know is how many people are going to use that key Where's the appliance going to be stored? What are the administrators going to be doing? And how are you going to be auditing those administrator functions? So it really is sort of a, it's a circular life cycle. Things uh, come around uh, in a sort of a a natural transition from step to step. Exactly. Everything is cyclical in the approach that one generally, if you're doing this properly, you don't create a key that you use in perpetuity, because as we all watch academics um, push further and further into how do I break key? I mean, it's it's a it's a active challenge for academics and mathematicians to be able to say, oh, I can factor the next whatever key size of RSA is out there, because they spend their lives doing that. So if you're still using key material 
that is smaller than whatever's being factored today, you're essentially wasting your time. So you have to have this cyclical approach that allows you to iteratively improve the mechanisms that you're using and the way that you're approaching key. And what are some of the the areas where folks fall short on this? Where where do they uh, drop the ball? The tendency is to say, oh, I need key to encrypt this kind of data, and so I'm going to go buy that product and bring it in without stepping back and saying, what's the full range of technologies that I'm using and are the decisions that I'm making for applying uh, cryptographic solutions consistent with what my IT environment looks like? Um, the, the other piece where I see is that looking at the hierarchy of what is the most secure set of solutions that you can apply, and then how do you work your way down into picking a set of solutions? Uh, for example, um, I think that one of the things that people generally do is they pick one solution and say, oh, that's going to work for everything. But if you've got storage area networks and you've got file encryption and you've got um, hard drives, you have to understand exactly how your IT environment works and what you've got and then what are those solutions that you can bring in and replace. I think folks have a, a natural tendency to, uh, to want to sort of set it and forget it. I suspect in this case that can lead to some real problems. Yes. And uh, the the first piece of it that I had mentioned earlier about the life cycle of the key is keys do age off and keys don't retain the security functions that one expects them to do when you do day one initialization of key. Uh, so, so that's a big part of it. And then adjusting where your data is and the priority of who has access to that data. For example, if you have administrators that are able to get to your unprotected key material and they leave, you want to have processes in place that can adapt and adjust for that. And again, I'm not not picking on administrators as being uh, nefarious in any stretch of the imagination, but you have to understand who has access to the crown jewels, and that's what keys are. And then what are your plans before you give them access to those keys for adjusting and responding to the fact that they may leave and they may move on? You, you want to be able to say, I have mechanisms mechanisms in place so that when my administrators move on or I need to replace them, I can also replace the key. Now, what about the, the protection of the key itself, the security of the key itself? I'm thinking of you know, sort of a, a real-world analogy of having a, a lock on your front door, and it's one thing to uh, to leave the key under the mat. It's another thing to put a sign on the, the front door that says the key is under the mat. Yes, and that's absolutely true. And what we find is that vendors don't always tell you where the key is when it's stored. I am a huge fan of hardware security modules, especially um, some of the ones that have proven time and time again that they do protect the key while the key is in there. Um, So, again, your security uh, technologists and architects need to understand where the key is during the information lifecycle and the encrypt decrypt lifecycle, it has to be unencrypted in memory. That's just the nature of the way using key is. Hmm. Um, but do you have audit processes in place to be able to understand which applications are pulling the key out of memory? So you, you, you look where it is at rest, you look where it is in motion, and then you understand the protections, whether they're actually 
here we're getting into onions of keys, uh, <laughs> encrypting the key, or is it the fact that it's in a protected process when it's being used? So it's it, it can get very complicated, and I think that's why most people want to have somebody else tell them, here's your solution and here's what you should do. Just, just push my easy button and then and, and you're all good. But I think we all owe it to ourselves to just dive into it a little bit deeper and have some sense of assurance that it is functioning as intended. That's Sandy Roddy. She's from the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>